0: Well, brethren, I thank you very much for the opportunity to uh, address you uh, this morning. My subject is Ezekiel's Theology of Judgment. Now that subject itself may not be as appetising, as welcoming as the theology of the cross, we all love to go to the cross and to have the theology of the cross but we live in a day and I don't think anyone would dispute the fact that we live in a day of God's judgement and as living in a day of God's judgement it becomes us to consider this subject and as they say in Northern Ireland we call a spade a spade as we were reminded this morning so I want to call a spade a spade when it comes to the the theology of Ezekiel. And there are three things that I wish to uh, look at. The the relevance of Ezekiel's theology, its relevance for today, the reasons for that judgment, and what we are to learn from uh, the Ezekiel's theology. Of judgment that we are given in his uh, book. Three things, the relevance, the reason and what we are to learn from it. Let us begin with the relevance of Ezekiel's judgment for our own day. We might uh, think to ourselves in the day in which we live, how can we understand what God is doing and what God is not doing in our own day? That is a very important question. It even comes up in questions that were asked at the end of the previous session. How can we understand God's judgement, what God is doing or what God is not doing and why he is doing it? We might sit down at our desk and sit and say, well, this is, the, this is why God's judgment is on, we'll write it down and that's the answer, and I ah, hear something else, and we write down, we write down something else. And <clears throat> all we're really doing is writing down our own pet issues. You sit down and write it, and someone else sits down, and you'll all come up with different issues because you're all coming up with your own pet issues. That's not how we need to look at God's judgment today. You need to understand, I think, we need to understand two things. First of all, history is always unique. We are living in times that are unique. Every time in history is absolutely unique. By the same token, there is nothing new under the sun. It's all been there before. Mr Kirkland, who lectures in history, will tell you that. It's all been there before. So that there's nothing new under the sun. So if we want to understand history, then we have to go back and ask, how has God dealt with his people in history? In order for us to understand what he's doing with us today. And we go back to the Reformation, we go back to the Covenanters, we go back to Martin Luther, and they all have their own specific place in history. But if we really want to know what God is doing, we need to go back to the Bible. We need to go back to the Word of God. And to the history that we have in Scripture. The Catechism tells you, in the very first Catechism, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. What rule has God given to us to direct us how to glorify and enjoy him? The Word of God. It's the only rule to direct us how we may glorify and enjoy him. So we come to the word of God. And if we come to the time of Ezekiel, I believe we have a time that we can associate very much with. There are many times in history that our history may associate with, but I think when you come to Ezekiel, and the day of Ezekiel, you will find... That it is relevant for three things, for three reasons: Ezekiel is relevant for us today. First of all, the outward situation in which Judah found itself in. Judah, in the time of Ezekiel, was on a very volatile and fluid political situation. Who knew what was going to happen? Babylon had already come down and taken the best of Judah into captivity in Babylon and that included Ezekiel. Ezekiel himself is the only prophet prophesying down in Babylon to those who are in captivity. He is taken into captivity. Now when they're down in Babylon the policy of Babylon was that they would take the people into captivity but they would allow them to worship. They didn't stop them worshipping. It was an oppressive time for God's people, but they could still worship. If you go to the psalm that we sung together, how can we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? They could do it, but it was a difficult situation for them. And if you also remember, standing on the sidelines are the Edomites. You remember the Edomites in Jerusalem's day who when Babylon came down and destroyed Jerusalem there were the Edomites encouraging them to utterly destroy Jerusalem. The Edomites hated God's people. Now let's think on that in our own day. Is the church in our own day not in a very fluid, volatile political situation? We have a government, the Scottish National Party and the Greens running the government in this country and they are against the gospel. They are passing laws that are are against the gospel. And there is an oppressive situation but you're still allowed to preach. You can still preach the gospel. You're still able to stand here with a Bible and preach as we are today. But on the sidelines... You have Stonewall, the Humanist Party, all these different parties, and they hate God's people, just as the Edomites hated God's people. So, from an outward position and an outward perspective, we can associate at least in some measure with Ezekiel and his day. But it wasn't just out with Judah that there were problems within Judah itself there were great problems we are told that there was gross idolatry you have the picture of Ezekiel walking towards the temple and there is the entrance the door to the temple and as he's taken to it there's a side door into which he is taken so it appears as though the worshippers are going into the temple But instead of going into the temple, they go in this side door and there are all manner of beasts and idolatrous things. When you read it, it actually gives you something of the shivers when you read it. That's what Ezekiel sees. There is gross idolatry. Now, the second thing you will find is that there were false prophets in Uh, Judah there weren't just those who preached other things other than what God said they actually opposed what God had to say through his own prophets they were opposing and persecuting Jeremiah and Ezekiel and they stood full square against the word of God now when you look at both these issues gentlemen you find that they're there in our own day. What passes for Christianity in our nation, Roman Catholicism, and that's what's being depicted, it's full of idolatry. That is rife in our own day with Roman Catholicism. Idolatry. But it's not just idolatry that that covers our, our, our nation. There's false prophets. You go to to Edinburgh, and I've mentioned this perhaps before. You've maybe heard me mentioning it before. There is a congregation in Edinburgh with a minister, and he boasted at the beginning of his preaching that that week he had visited the Humanist Society. They had wanted to speak with him. And the first question the humanist society asked him was, do you believe that Jesus Christ died for your sins? He said, I told them, not at all. Who believes that? That's all, that's all old-fashioned stuff. We don't believe that. False prophets in our own day. Not only those who will preach other things, but those who will actually stand as there was in the day of Ezekiel, And prophesy false things. But it wasn't just a problem out with Judah. It wasn't even just a problem within Judah. There was a third problem. And that is that those who who stood for the truth, those who were concerned for the truth, were but a remnant, a very small remnant. You see them in chapter 9 that we read, And the Lord said unto him, Go through the midst of the city, through the midst of Jerusalem, and set a mark upon the foreheads of the men that sigh and that cry for all the abominations that be done in the midst thereof. There was only a remnant that was left that actually sighed and cared truly for God's cause. Only a remnant. My friend, can that not be said in our own day? In Presbyterian Scotland, you come to the small Presbyterian churches where there is generally a a desire, one way or another, they sigh and they cry for the state of our nation and for the state of the church. My own denomination, Free Church Continuing Free Presbyterians, Reformed Presbyterians, the smaller denominations within this nation are basically the denominations that seek to preserve the truth. But my friend, what impact are these congregations making and denominations making in our land today? Very little. Any congregations that seem to prosper, it's just a case of musical chairs. We are making no inroads whatsoever into the the, the general population of our nation. The only one that might be doing that is there is a Joe Free Church. Who if you believe what they say and possibly true it, it appears that sometimes they will go out and start a work and they appear to get people in. Now I will refer to that later on. But generally the smaller Presbyterian, and when I say the Presbyterian church, I'm not discounting independent congregations. I think what you will find in independent churches in our land, the same thing will be reflected as is true among Presbyterian Scotland. There is but a remnant. And my friend, for all these reasons, the situation in which we find Ezekiel Mirrors at least something of our own day. That we can learn things from what happened in his day. The outward situation, the inward situation and only the remnant left. That brings us then to the second uh, point that we want to look at. The reason for Ezekiel's theology of judgement. The reasons for the judgement. Now there is a difficulty as we heard earlier on today very well in in the address. When Luther looked at things, he says you have to assess the situation. You have to look at the problem. We all know what the problem is. We can see the problem. But to analyse it And get an answer to it, you must first of all find the reason for it. You find that, and that can be be difficult. But when you come to the Old Testament, you will find that God's judgment comes upon a people. In Ezekiel's day, and we'll look at Ezekiel's day, but even before you come to Ezekiel's day, there are three occasions when God's judgment is particularly poured out. Upon a people. The first, of course, is in the day of Noah. God's judgment is poured out at the very beginning of history. God's judgment is poured out upon the workers of iniquity so that for the rest of history of this world, no one can ever question what God's view is of iniquity, sin, and unbelief. He gives a wonderful demonstration of his wrath poured out at the beginning of the Old Testament. How wonderful it is at the beginning of the New Testament, at the cross, he gives a wonderful demonstration, a one-off demonstration, once again, of his love that is poured out to sinners through Jesus Christ. But in Noah's day, we are being shown that what John later says, He that believeth hath everlasting life, he that believeth not the wrath of God abideth upon him. But Noah's judgment wasn't to happen again. It's a one-off. So we can forget that one, perhaps. But then you come to the Tower of Babel. When you see God's judgment once again poured out upon those who are filled with pride. They were going to build a city. They were going to make their way up to heaven. Gross ignorance. Gross pride. Resulting in Gross confusion. Does that not describe something, at least of our own day? We're not going to build a city and build a tower to heaven. We're going to save the world. We are going to save the world from global warming and all the rest of it. Green issues. We, all these things, we are going to be the ones that will save the world. What pride, man, and what confusion follows. What confusion. There is absolute confusion in our own day. Is a boy a boy, or is a girl a girl? Do they even know? They can change, they can call themselves what they are. What's that But gross confusion that sin brings? You can have adverts for save the tiger, save the lion, save the rhino, save the penguin, save the donkey, peamed right into your home in adverts, put through your letterbox and letters, but you stand up and save the... Unborn child, and you'll be put in jail. What confusion sin brings. That's our own day, late gentlemen. The Tower of Babel. But then you come, of course, to the second great, and that is Sodom and Gomorrah. It's not just that those of Sodom practiced that sin themselves. They must impose it upon Lot and his house. And not only that, it says young, old, young and old. Now, the word young there, someone's asked me, what does the Hebrew word young there mean? Does it mean late teens, 20s? The word young there, it's minahar. Min is from. So it's saying minahar, from young. And the word young there means from the very youngest age. From the very youngest age right up to the elderly. They seek to they sought to impose and to pollute the minds of their young people in Sodom with this. My friend, is that not us today? Is that not is that not Scotland today? Imposing these things upon us all, whether you want it or not, and seeking to pollute the minds of our young people with it. That's Scotland today. And do you know how judgment began? It didn't began with the with the fire and brimstone from above. It began with Lot being taken out of Sodom. God's people would be removed from Sodom and then fire and brimstone would be brought down upon them. We often ask the question, Why is it that God is not blessing the church? My friend, the answer is before your face. God is not blessing the church because he's not blessing this nation because this nation is like Sodom and Gomorrah. We should be asking, why is God so patient? Why has God been so gracious? Not why is he not blessing us. But then you come, gentlemen, to the third. Uh, to, to the, to, you go through the Tower of Siloam. You go to Sodom and Gomorrah. Sodom and Gomorrah and Babel, they were out there. But here you come to Jerusalem itself. When you come to Jerusalem, you come to God's people. And you come to, the mo- you come to one of the most uh, solemn Aspects of God's judgment being poured out in the Old Testament. You think of Sodom and Gomorrah. I don't believe that Sodom and Gomorrah and the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah was as solemn as the destruction of Jerusalem. And that brings us to ask the question, why? 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 Why is it that God would destroy of all places Jerusalem? Why? Well, the Bible tells us why. One of them is because of the idolatry. That was there. Idolatry was in the midst of Jerusalem. Secondly, they persecuted the prophets. They persecuted Jeremiah. They persecuted Ezekiel. That was there. But there was one further thing that brought God's judgment upon Jerusalem. Had this one thing not been done, Jerusalem wouldn't have fallen. These other things were there. And they brought the judgment, but there was one thing at the end that triggered God's judgment upon God's people. What was that judgment? Well Jeremiah goes to Zedekiah the king. And, Zedekiah, and Jeremiah says to Zedekiah the king listen here Jeremiah uh, Zedekiah you must do obeisance to Nebuchadnezzar the king of Babylon. And if you don't God's judgment is going to come upon this city and you will not know the whirlwind that comes from the north. You better do obedience to Nebuchadnezzar. Zedekiah was a man that probably did agree with Jeremiah. But the trouble was he was a weak man. And he listened to the young guns that were left in Jerusalem. All the wise men had been taken down to Babylon. You were left with all these young guns in Jerusalem. And they were saying, no, no, no. We go with Egypt. We trust in Egypt. And Zedekiah went along with that. And the result was the destruction of Jerusalem. Why would destruction come upon Jerusalem because Judah doesn't do obeisance to Nebuchadnezzar. Is it that Jeremiah is some kind of great war admiral that knows all the strategic moves? No. Is it because God couldn't protect them from Babylon? No. Wasn't any of that. The reason why Jerusalem was destroyed and why Jeremiah said to Zedekiah, you must do obeisance to Nebuchadnezzar is because Zedekiah on behalf of Judah made a solemn vow before God that he would do obeisance to Babylon. Babylon. And Jeremiah comes back to Zedekiah and says, You break that vow that you have made before God and in the name of God, invoking the name of Yahweh, and I'm telling you, judgment will come upon you. Now, does that apply to our own day? Surely it does. You go to out there into the world. What do vows mean out there in the world? They absolutely mean nothing. You can take vows before a a congregation, marriage vows. You can break them like that nowadays. You can get a quickie divorce. It means nothing. And sadly, that very attitude has spilled into the church. Has spilled into God's people. Has spilled into the church. We think that marriage or vows that are taken can be broken. My friend, they can't. It's a very solemn thing to make a vow before God and then to break that vow. But let's come into the church and ask ourselves about the, the, in, within the church. You go back in the history of our, 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 our the church in Scotland. What a wonderful history. You come right down through 1843 to the free church who stands on the the patronage, who comes down to 1900, and they stood and said in 1900, you cannot change the vows that men have solemnly taken before God because they have vowed to the constitution of this church. You can't do that. Not even one man standing up and saying, I disagree, can allow that to happen. because Because the vows that these men had taken were so fundamental. The Free Presbyterian Church today and the residual free church take a different view of the Declaratory Act. They say the Declaratory Act is there and can allow into the church changes. The free church men in 1900, the Constitutionalists said, you cannot change the constitution of this church. Why not? Because our men have vowed, a vow to defend it to the death. Sadly, down through the 20th century, gentlemen, men were taking vows within the free church that they had no intention of maintaining. That is the conclusion and the only conclusion that one can come to. In 2010 the residual free church. The second biggest Presbyterian church in Scotland as a denomination says we will change and we will, we will break the vows that we have taken to assert, maintain and defend purity of worship. Since then they have broken the vow to the confession of faith and we think or people think that's okay the response that we give perhaps is let's write a book defending purity of worship. My friend whether they sing psalms or hymns is a secondary issue. The biggest issue is the fact that vows have been broken before. solemn vows have been broken before God. It was in, in Zedekiah's day judgment came upon the Lord's people and, the, and Judah, and it affected everyone. It came upon Jerusalem because vows, one vow that had, been, that had been given in the name of Yahweh was broken. My friend, no wonder God's judgment is upon us as a nation. And you also rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar, who had made him swear by God. Second Chronicles thirty-six and verse thirteen. The picture that's given in Ezekiel chapter seventeen is of the two eagles. One e- two eagles come, and there's a vine. One vine, he says, is planted among merchants. That's in Babylon. And it, that vine went towards Babylon. The other vine is planted in a good land, but it turns towards the other ego. In defiance of the vow that they had made, they turned to Egypt and Jerusalem is destroyed. That brings us then to the third thing. What do we learn from all of this? Well, we look at the history of Scotland. Look at the history of our nation. It's a wonderful history, isn't it? it takes you right back to the Reformation. The time of John Knox. The Covenanters, 1843. Write down, great blessings. Our nation of Scotland sent missionaries out to China, Peru, India, All these different places. Africa. What a history. God would never allow the gospel light to go out in Scotland. My friend, they said the same thing about Jerusalem. They said exactly the same thing about Jerusalem. Even Ezekiel said, no, not Jerusalem. Anywhere else the light can go out. Anywhere else God's judgment can But Not Jerusalem, my friend. Is that what we think about Scotland? Do you think today that Scotland is such a favoured country that God will not bring his judgment and that God will not put out the gospel light in this country? Don't be fooled. They said that in Ezekiel's day about Jerusalem. And Jerusalem was destroyed. The second thing we ought to To learn from this is that Ezekiel and the remnant but particularly Ezekiel and Jeremiah but particularly Ezekiel when he heard what God was going to do he cried out no Lord I plead with you don't do this to Jerusalem what's God's answer? God's answer says Go ye after unto the city and smite, let not your eyes spare, neither have ye pity slay utterly old and young, both maids and little children and women. God said, I will bring judgment. And it doesn't matter, you can plead all you like, Ezekiel, the day has come when judgment is coming upon Jerusalem. And my friend, do you think that we're any better than Ezekiel or the remnant that was there in Jerusalem's day? We can cry out, we can plead with the Lord. But my friend, all our pleading and all our prayers must be sprinkled with the words of our Lord Jesus Christ. Not my will, but thy will be done. Why are we not blessed? It's almost as though we deserve it. It's as almost as though God is duty bound to give us it. My friend, he's not. If God's judgment is coming, God's judgment is coming. But what did they do in Jeremiah's day, in Ezekiel's day? What you find them doing is they were faithful. Jeremiah in 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 in. Jerusalem, Ezekiel in amongst those in Babylon they were faithfully preaching they knew what was coming we don't know what was going to happen in Scotland how much more ought we to preach and be faithful how much more ought we to be bringing uh, these things to the attention of our nation and yes to other churches how we ought to speak out and they spoke out and they suffered for it Jeremiah suffered by being cast into prison. Ezekiel suffered for it because he lost his wife. The Lord said to Ezekiel, go and preach and tell them that tomorrow your wife will die. And when she dies, it will be a sign to the people of God's judgment to come. Ezekiel gets up and he preaches that very message. His own dear one and you can tell from the way it's written that he loved his wife. His wife was taken and she died, and that was a sign to them. My friend, what have we had to suffer? What have we had to, to, to put up with in our own days? The one difference, isn't it? Jeremiah is put into prison. How many of us have been put into prison? Are we ready to be put into prison for the sake of the gospel? He lost his wife, Ezekiel. How much are we losing? For the sake of the gospel. We've not lost anything gentlemen. But let us also notice. That in the midst of God's judgment. God would still bless. God still blessed his people. We often ask the question. Why is not, Why is God not blessing us? My friend, God is blessing us. He's He always blesses His people. Look at how He put an ink mark upon those who were there. Put an ink mark. Separate them. Don't let a mark come upon them. Smite. Let not your eyes spare. Slay utterly. But come not near any man upon whom is the mark. The mark of the ink. They were, hit, they, were, they were spared. But not only that gentlemen. While Jerusalem is destroyed. And Judah is overrun. God brings his people out into Babylon. And there there is a vine that prospers. God will bless his church despite the sins of the people. My friend the day may come when the gospel light will go out in this nation. Does that mean to say that God's work of grace has stopped? Not at all. We have narrow blinkers because we go out into the world and we see how God is blessing so many nations with the, with the gospel that our nation is rejecting. God's purposes won't fail. And let me show you something else. When they went down into Babylon, the best of God's people went down into Babylon and there they were. There they were worshipping. And at the beginning of chapter 9, you see God already beginning to move off, of the, off the mercy seat. He's already moving away from the mercy seat. He goes to the outer doors. And you know what he says to God's people? He says to God's people, I will be to you as a little sanctuary down in Babylon. Isn't that wonderful? <laughs> God's people are in Babylon and God is there with them. I will be like a little sanctuary to you. My friend, that was the beginning of the synagogue worship. Down in Babylon, there is the beginning of the synagogue worship. And how that synagogue worship was greatly blessed to the gospel, wasn't it? Where did Paul go when he went first of all from Jerusalem down to Antioch? They left Antioch, went round Cyprus, went from Cyprus over into Turkey, up into Turkey, up into Lystra. Where did they go? The first place they went? The synagogue. They preached in the synagogues. And there the first congregations of God's people in the New Testament were formed, the Hebrews in the synagogues. You see, God is a way ahead of every one of us when it comes to it. God knows and God even blesses his own church. In the midst of his, in the midst of his, uh, in the midst of his judgments, and here's another wonderful thing: you go down into Babylon, and there you've got Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, who's humbled before God. There he is mad. Then he lifts himself up, and he's humbled. Yeah, you see your ways are not God's ways, my ways, my thoughts are not God's thoughts. God knows the beginning from the end and God will never forsake his people. That's the optimism that we can have even today. He may not bless this country, who knows? We must humble ourselves like the those who are the minority, the remnant, we must humble ourselves. We must cry unto the Lord. Perhaps he will be gracious to our country. But as Dr. Kennedy once said, way back in the 1800s, he saw it coming in his own day. That's 400 a odd years ago. God said he would always have his people. But he didn't say he would always have it in Scotland. Who knows what's going to happen to our country? But we can be sure. Of this we can be sure. Not one whom the Father has given to the Son will ever be lost. And not one for whom the Son has died and for whom he prays will ever be lost. And not one the same whom the Holy Spirit blesses the word will ever be lost. So that When you come to glory when you come to Emmanuel's land and there is the great marriage supper of the land what has happened? The gospel has gone out and some have made excuses then it's taken and it goes out there and others make excuses, they don't come, they don't want it then it goes into the highways and the byways and they come do you know what ends up do you know the purpose of that that my house might be full that's the glory of that parable isn't it that God is a house Jesus Christ speaks of it a house of many mansions there is a place there for all whom the father has given to the son and nothing will come to an end until that house is full do you know what it is? There it is the marriage supper of the lamb. You go to a marriage. And sometimes someone can't be there because they're ill or someone else can't be there because of circumstances. At the great marriage supper of the Lamb, there will be not one seat that's left empty. All of God's people, all of the bride will be taken in. That's the encouragement that God gives us in his Bible. Thank you very much, gentlemen.